Welcome to Doing CX Right, a podcast where we discuss how to differentiate brands by doing customer experience right. I'm your host, Stacey Sherman, an author, award-winning keynote speaker, and mentor passionate to help you humanize business and improve experiences to achieve real results. Today, I'm interviewing a real rock star, James Dodkins, who knows a lot about turning customers into long-term fans and important lessons from the music industry that apply to business. He is challenging the status quo, and I love his controversial views to get you thinking and doing CX right in better ways. You'll hear James talk about putting your customers second. Sounds strange, huh? Not really, as you'll understand what this means and what you can do to take your company to the next level, not in theory, but in actual tactical ways right now. I have one request. Please share this episode with your friends. Subscribe to my show on your favorite podcast channel and leave a review. It would mean so much to me. Now, let's get on with the show. Hello, James Dawkins. Welcome to the Doing CX Right Show. Hello. Thank you for inviting me to be a guest on the Doing CX Right Show. Well, you are doing so much right, so I am thrilled to have you here. Thank you. So I'd like to start off with who are you? What do you do? So my name is James Dodkins. I am the CX ambassador for Pegasystems. And essentially, I talk about customer experience to people if they want to listen. Well, whether they want to listen to it or not. That's what I just I just talk to people about customer experience. I got the best job in the world. Uh, I used to be an actual real life legitimate award winning rock star, but now I'm not. Now you might know me as the customer experience rock star, which was a title bestowed on me by uh, my, myself. So, so that's what I do. Essentially, I'm just a dude that talks about customer experience a lot. I love that. And I would say you're still a rock star in so many ways. Tell me why. That's that's what I tell myself <laughs> as, I, as I tuck myself into bed <laughs> at 9.30 at night. You're still a rock star, James. You still are. Now, why? Why are you so passionate about customer experience from when you were a rock star on stage to now working in a company and doing all that you do. Why? Well, the thing is, so I've been involved in the discipline of customer experience for about 10 years. And of course, before that, I had a music career. And I realized that it turns out that music career was all about customer experience too. So I was doing customer experience long before I even really like knew it existed. Um, And I know each and every person watching this, I know you yourself and everybody watching this, they're going to have their own unique story of how they found their love of customer experience. But for me, I got my love of customer experience from being in a touring band because for me, putting on an amazing show for your fans night after night is exactly the same as delivering amazing experiences to your customers day after day. And I don't think there are very many um, sort of vocations in the world, very many careers in the world that can touch the hearts and minds of so many people than customer experience. And music is one of them. That's probably more. But the other one is customer experience. Like working in customer experience, you can literally 
change the lives of hundreds of thousands, millions of people. And for me, that's that's super exciting. Yes. I also believe that CX people, and there's a lot, the list is growing fast, which is wonderful, but they're the nicest people you'll ever meet. Do you agree? Yeah, I do. It's, and I think it, it, it sort of comes with the job, doesn't it? You need to have a certain amount of empathy. You see, need to have a certain amount of emotional intelligence to you know, do customer experience well. So I think like we tend to gravitate towards each other. And yeah, you're right. We're a, we're a bunch of nice folks. We are. So let's get into the meat of the show, which is really about giving listeners actionable tips and best practices. One thing is you write and talk a lot about turning customers into fans, which I imagine comes from your music background because you need fans to keep performing. What does that mean in business? Well, in terms of business, Horatio tends to sort of kick in. And according to Forrester, in business, we make 80% of our profits from 20% of our customers. Now, to me, that kind of means that if you've got 100 customers, only 20 of them actually sort of like you. The rest are probably just tolerating you. And I think we can move that percentage by turning customers into fans. Now, for a business, what does that actually mean? What is a fan in terms of business? Well, this is a person that is going to you know, stay with you for life. They're going to advocate for you. They're going to market on your behalf. They're going to pay whatever you want. They're going to be the first people to defend you online. They're going to be the first people to write positive comments. These are the people that are going to go to bat for you. These are people where almost their association with you as a company becomes a little bit like a part of their identity. And I think if we can turn more of our customers into fans, it's just going to be better for everyone. It's going to be better for the customers because you're going to be doing cool stuff for them. And it's going to be better for the company because, well, you're going to be making more money. So for, for me, that's why it's important to look through this lens of trying to see, well, what is it we can do? What ideas can we borrow from the music world? Not just the music world, just from fandom in general. That could be a sports team. It could be a, a film franchise. It could be the Harry Potter books, whatever. What are the lessons we can learn from fandom to help turn those customers into fans? Yes. So what are some tactics if you are coming into a company, whether it's a startup company or an entrepreneurial division in a big corporation, what would you tell them? How do you actually get fans? What's some steps? I think the first step to turn customers into fans is really a mindset shift around the understanding of what customer experience really is. Customer experience isn't about experience. Customer experience is about relationships. And to really understand why that is a big deal, you kind of then need to break down what a relationship is and how relationships are formed. So I want you to think of it like a pyramid. So you've got your relationship at the top, okay? Now, all a relationship is, is a collection of memories with another party. That's all a relationship is. Now, memories are the way that we store emotions. Emotions are created by experiences, and that's both good or bad. And all experiences are a collections of moments bundled together. 
So if you really want to understand the relationship you have with your customers, you need to first understand the moments that you share with them. Those moments bundled together create discrete experiences. Those experiences create emotions within the customers. Those emotions are stored as memories. And the collection of those memories is that relationship with another party. And that could be a friend, a family member, a rock band, or a company. Mm. So in other words, we're memory makers. Ooh, yeah, I like that. And that's, that, that's a good, it's a good point because like a musician, you could argue, is the art of turning notes into songs. For me, a customer experience professional, being a customer experience professional is the art of turning moments into relationships moments into memories moments into movements and so you are right we are we're all moment makers or memory makers whatever you said whichever whatever <laughs> you said you're right so yours was better i think now how do you know how do you know that you're creating the good memories and moments that create the lasting impressions and relationships it's a good question i think there's there's two ways to do it. You either use surveys, which if anyone's ever followed anything I've ever done, I'm not really a massive fan of. Or you look at the behaviours of your customers. And I want you to think of it like a thermometer. Okay, all right. But for fans, they're right, so this is good. So it's like a thermometer for fans. A fanometer. What? <laughs> so whereas you've got a fan this side, Neutral customer here. But look, you got to realize on this phenometer, every single moment that a customer shares with your company is going to take them a little bit further or a little, a little bit closer or a little bit further away to being a fan. But if you do enough negative moments, it's going to push them past the neutral stage and they're going to end up at the other end of the spectrum. So what what is the opposite of a fan? Well, of course, it's a hater. So they're two ends of the scale. you got fans and you got haters. And... You've got to realize the closer a customer uh, goes towards being a fan, their likelihood to purchase from you, their likelihood to recommend you, their likelihood to pay more, their likelihood to stay with you for longer is going to increase. The further away you push them towards being a fan, the further towards being a hater, their likelihood to advocate for you, to recommend you, to buy things from you, to pay more is going to decrease. So it's understanding that every, every single moment matters on this scale, and it's going to take customers closer towards doing those behaviors that you want or further away from doing those behaviors. So you can objectively look at your customers and say, well, hang on a second, do we actually have fans or not? Do, are they displaying the behaviors that we know to be behaviors of fans or the behaviors of haters. So I like that idea of being able to objectively look at it. It's not about going to customers after you've delivered the experience and going, hey, we've got no idea how good that was. Can you tell us? It's about objectively looking at it and going, we need to know. We need to know whether we're doing a good job or not. And we need to be putting it right. And for me, the way to understand that is looking at behaviors. I love what you said. A couple of things. One, I just had Jay Bear on my show and he talked about hug your haters. So that was Mm -hmm. very, a very nice tie-in to what you just said. That's a good linkage. So thank you for that without you realizing. (laughs) Secondly, I imagine in the music world, you're looking at the behaviors. Now that's easier because 
You see how many people are in the audience. You hear the claps and you you get a lot more real-time, tangible feedback, verbal and nonverbal. Has that elevated your understanding and passion to this topic in a non-musical way? I, I don't really think it's different anymore. If you imagine the crowd like in a venue being the internet... <laughs> You're getting the same instant feedback all the time on Twitter, on Facebook, on the review sites. They're already putting this stuff out there. They're already, like, this is the crowd noise. It's just in a different environment. And you can see it. Like, soliciting the feedback is one thing. But going out there and seeing comments in their natural environment, that's very different. Because, again, after you've played a gig, you could go to someone. You could grab someone someone from the crowd and be like, how was it? And they go... Uh, uh, yeah, great. Yeah, you did really, really well. Really, really enjoyed it. And you go, yes, best band in the world. But <laughs> if you could actually see in the moment that they weren't clapping and they weren't cheering, and then they went online afterwards, or they told a friend how awful it was, you know, that's a little bit realer. So for me, that unsolicited feedback, those unsolicited comments that are being put out there online by people who have been moved to do it, that's that's far more valuable. So I think it's exactly the same. Just different. See, the same but different, yes. (laughs) I think that was in a Seinfeld show once. I love also the fact you're bringing up an important point of doing CX right, meaning that surveys are valuable, but how much time and intentional energy needs to be put towards monitoring social media and ratings and review sites, the unsolicited feedback, that's where brands go wrong. They ignore that and they don't aggregate all of the feedback sources. Do you agree? Yeah, I do. Uh, the, The thing is, I think a lot of companies do customer feedback for the wrong reasons. It's not because they actually want information to help them get better. It's because they want to put a number on a scale. They just want a number to look at and go, hey, look, everyone, look at this number. Isn't it big? What a what a big number. But there's no quicker way to let a customer know that you don't really care about their feelings than forcing them to distill complex emotions down to a number on a predetermined scale. You're condensing people down to numbers. That's not customer-centric. That's not doing CX right, to, to say the name of this, the show that we're on right now. You've got to have the right reasons for doing it in the first place, I think. And I think there is a good way to do customer feedback. And it's the thing is... For years, my very first book that was published in 2014, I was speaking out against feedback then. It's it's kind of like um, in vogue now. It, like people all are talking out against NPS and saying, oh, no, it's not. I, I was old school. I was retro. I was doing it back in the day. Um, but I've been talking against feedback for so long. But what I started to realize is that although I might have some good points, you're all still going to do it. You're all still going to do feedback surveys. So my new stance is, okay, you are going to do them. The least you could do is make them not suck. Okay. And it's <laughs> companies think that feedback surveys are the measurement of the experience and forget that the feedback survey is an experience 
That's one of the biggest mistakes for me when it comes to customer feedback surveys. They don't understand that the survey in and of itself is an experience. And all of the feedback surveys, they're boring, they're unpersonalized, they're very um, rarely relevant. A lot of times they get sent to you a long time after you've actually been through the experience. So I kind of want to see a world that if you are going to do customer feedback surveys, they could at least not suck. They could at least be fun. They could at least be interesting. They could at least be relevant. They could at least talk about things that the customer cares about rather than things that you care about. So we've gone a bit off track, but I, I don't know what you think about that, but that's my opinion. We could spend the whole show just on this topic because feedback surveys, it's a science and an art. And I do take pride in the, the place I work. We're doing phone surveys and my team is personalizing. They are trying to make it fun. And when it's a phone conversation, transactional and relationship type of feedback. You really can listen to what the customer says and respond and not sound like you're talking from a script. That is doing it right. And it's easy. It's not hard. It's just being trained the right way. Yeah, I agree. And it's, it's having the right intention, I think, is, is the, first, the first hurdle. Like, why are you even doing it? Why are you doing these feedback surveys? What is it because you want that number that you can brag about? Is it because somebody has told you you've got to do it? Is it because it's a tick box exercise? Is it because some your bonus is tied to getting your NPS score up by three points or whatever? It's if the intention is pure, let's say, and you're doing it because you really want to understand the areas that you're not quite fulfilling on your brand promise, the areas that aren't quite smooth enough or easy enough or convenient enough for the customers, the areas where the customers aren't able to achieve what it is they're trying to achieve and you want to help put that right, then yeah, you know what, you've got my back and I can I can get behind that. But when it's just because you want to put a number on the wall, I, I don't know, I just I can't get behind it. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Now, let's talk about you speak and write about putting your customers second. Yeah. What does that mean to you? Well, I truly believe that if you want to put your customers first, you need to put your employees first, first, and almost have like an unwritten contract internally that as the leadership, you will put your employees first and in return, they will put the customers first. So if you look after your employees, your employees will look after the customers. And I think there's, there's to be fair, there's lots of companies that are actually coming around to this idea right now that to have happy customers it's probably a good idea to have happy employees as well. And you know what? There have been some studies done that show that happy employees don't always make happy customers. You can have happy customers without happy employees. But the question is, like, how sustainable is that? Amazon are one company that have started to realize that, hang on a second, we've got loads of happy customers, but our employees are getting less and less happy every single day. So they've pivoted They've changed. They no longer want to be the world's most customer-centric company. They want to be the world's, what, best employer or something? Something along those lines. Um, they're starting to realize that actually 
that's the way to go. I was talking with Max Israel earlier today, uh, the founder of Customerville, and we were talking about employees. And he, he said that there's one million, and I don't, I haven't fact-checked this, so you guys can go and do that. And if you don't at me, at Max, there's one million customers, um, employ, there's one million, right. There's one million employees in the United States that don't show up to work every single day, not because they're sick, not because the child's ill, just because they, they're just stressed. They just don't want to go to work. That's crazy. That's a lot of people not turning up to work every single day because they're miserable at work. Now, what does the future hold for those kinds of people? What, do we just pay them more? Is that going to make them come in? I, I don't think that's going to necessarily work because of inflation. If we just say, you know what, I, we know this is an awful job, let's just pay you more. And then they're going, oh, well, we're going to have to start charging more for our products and services. And then, of course, it, it, it's just this, that's inflation. <laughs> what do we do? What can we do to make it so that people don't hate the work they do? We spend most of our lives at work. Like, what? what is it? You're going to get whole movements of people that just aren't going to work anymore. They're just going to go, you know what? I don't care if I've got no money. I don't care if I have to live in a car. I just don't want to do a crappy job. So there's going to be a whole bunch of new challenges that come up that we we need to help sort out. Because at the end of the day, if you've got no employees, you're probably going to deliver a pretty crappy customer experience because there's no one there to make it happen. And it's it's one of the reasons that Pega's a really good company. It's one of the reasons I joined Pega. Because of the automation that Pega does, we take away a lot of the mundane, boring work that people don't actually like doing. And it frees up their time to do really meaningful work that they can feel that they are actually contributing to the world. And I think that's amazing. And I think this is going to be a big trend moving forward. I think it's something that we should all be focusing on, not just people that are in employee experience or in that world. As customer experience professionals, I think we have a responsibility to look to that next layer and say, well, who are the people that are responsible for delivering this customer experience and how can we make their lives better too? I think part of making their lives better is really looking at what are the things, how can you free up time for employees to be able to do what they need to do instead of the distractors? And obviously yep. automation helps with that, but it also takes good leadership to know what does your employee love to do? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And for me, there's there's kind of there's two types of experience. There's like there's transactional experience and there's emotional experience. So transactional experience would be like you need to change your address, for example. You need to call up and change your address. You don't need to be wowed. You don't need somebody to understand your emotion unless you're changing your address because like a family member's died or so. Maybe that was a bad example. But if it's literally you've just moved house for no real reason, transact that should literally happen instantaneously. It should just happen. It should be automated. It should get done. But then there's other experiences that play into emotions. And I, like, let's say that you're calling up to claim on a life insurance policy. That sh that's not a process or an experience that should be automated. That's a process or experience that should have somebody with the freedom and the empowerment to spend the time with that person to achieve what needs to be achieved. Now, it's that's good for the company because it builds that relationship with the customers. But it's good for it's good for the customer, of course, because they've got that empathetic person there that's working with them, that's present, that's mindful, 
instead of mindful. Uh, see what I did there. But it's mm. it's really good for the employee too because they feel like they're actually making a difference in the world. They feel like they've got a purpose. Giving an employee a purpose is probably the single best gift you can give to any person working for your company. Allowing them to feel part of something, allowing them to realise that they are working for something bigger than themselves. They are changing the world. They are changing people's lives. Getting them to do mundane things like address changes is not helping them feel that freeing up their time to allow them to actually spend time with customers empathetically that's 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 the gift that keeps on giving ooh beautifully said it's also really relevant at a time right now where offices are opening up and people are able to return to work in the post pandemic world although we're not out of it yet but even into the future, it's changed the way we work and it's changed people's beliefs on that they want to be able to work however they work best, wherever yeah. they work best. And I could see the predicament between the employer who wants people in the office collaborating and the employees who say, I've also been working from home for a year and a half. I can do this and I've shown you this. So I see the quandary. Do you have an opinion of these two sides and how do you drive employee satisfaction given this? It's a good question. I don't really have a definitive answer. Um, all I can say is that from the research I've done into companies that put their customers second and put their employees first, there's a few things that come out that tend to be the areas that they focus on. Um, it spells an acronym. It's not particularly catchy, but it's VACWIRE. I'll talk you through that. So V is vision, mission, and values. And that's kind of what I spoke about before. It's allowing people to understand where the company's going, what they're trying to do for the world, and the types of things that they stand for. And as I said, that's probably one of the best gifts you can give to an employee, to have a really authentic vision, mission, and value set that you can give to them and that they can be part of. A is about alignment. So making sure the things that they do on a daily basis are actually aligned towards achieving those vision, mission, and values. Because it's all well and good saying, we stand for this, but then making them do that. You need to make sure there is that alignment there. C is for capabilities. So can they actually do the stuff that's expected of them? It's training them to do the things that you want them to do. It's allowing them to have the skill set that they need to complete those tasks. W is workplace. So the actual environment that they work in, where are they? And this is where, this is where the question sparked this answer. The environment they're working in is so incredibly important to, to just them, their mental well-being and the work that they do. And there are going to be some people that prefer to work at home. There are going to be some people that prefer to work in the office. But as you said, the pandemic has shown that people can work from anywhere. It's shown a lot of people that some people prefer working from home. Some people prefer not working from home. But we've got the technology now to be able to make it so that people can work from anywhere in the world anywhere they want, in any way that they want, flexibly. It doesn't always even have to be nine to five. Create. It doesn't have to be Monday to Friday. Who says it has to be that way? I think the future is going to be this flexible work where people are working when and where they want. As long as they get the things done they need to get done, it's going to be flexible. So the I in VACWIRE stands for incentives. And this is actually incentivizing people to do the things 
the, do the right things. Because again, there is no point saying, this is what we stand for, this is what we want you to be doing, but then incentivizing them to do different things. And this is where, for example, I don't like bonuses attached to NPS because I think it incentivizes the wrong behavior. If you pay people for doing dumb stuff, they get really smart at doing it. So you need to be careful about that and make sure that they are getting rewarded for doing the right things. R stands for resources, giving them the stuff they need to get the job done. And that can be equipment. Um, it can be budgets. It can be other people that help them. Coaching, training, that is all resources. And then E, the final one, which maybe you could argue is the most important one. E stands for empowerment. It's letting them know you've got their back. It's letting them know mm. that you trust them to do what is needed. It's letting them know that they are capable of making decisions on behalf of the company. It's letting them know that as long as they are doing things in line with that vision, mission, and values, they're not, you're not going to get in trouble. They're not going to get at you. You've got their back. You can do it. You are empowered. It's letting them know that they have been hired for a reason. They've been hired because they are a smart, capable, unique individual. There is no point hiring smart, unique, capable individuals and then forcing them into a box and telling them exactly what they do. That's, that's where process automation comes in. Automate that stuff. If there's stuff that needs to happen exactly the same every single time, automate it. That's a relic of the industrial age, getting people and forcing them to behave like they're on a factory line, getting people and forcing them to behave like robots. The thing is, it turns out people don't like doing repetitive tasks over and over again. Turns out robots are really good at doing that. So what we've been doing is getting people and trying to make them work like robots. Turns out people don't like that. Turns out you can get robots to do all that stuff and free people up to do all that other stuff. So for me, those those are the areas that we need to be focusing on. So that choir, vision, mission, and values, alignment, capabilities, workplace, incentives, resources, and empowerment. There you go. That was a long answer. Sorry. Well, it was great. And I would say I'm going to sum that up with four words, which is lead with a heart. Because... Yes. <laughs> right? Because then you accomplish all of the above. And to my last two questions, but I think you just answered one of them, is if you had to tell CEOs, leaders, imagine they're all in my room right now, what's the one thing you want them to do? What's the one takeaway? Actually spend time doing the job that your frontline people do and talk to customers. Kills two birds with one stone, because then you understand what your people are going through every single day. You understand their challenges, their limitations, and so you can empathize with them better. But you also understand what the customers are going through and what the customers are trying to achieve. And of course, they'll come away from it with a renewed and healthy respect for the work that these guys do every day and the challenges that they face and the challenges that customers face. Yeah, ask, ask any CEO, when was the last time you actually spoke to a customer? Ask them when was the last time you actually spoke to somebody on the front line in a customer-facing role. I hate the, the term front line. It's a stupid term. We're not fighting a war with customers. We shouldn't really use that, but I'll use it so you know what I'm talking about. But customer-facing roles. Just, just go and spend time in these environments. Do the job for a while. Actually get on the phones and talk to people. Actually get in the stores and sell things to people. You know what I mean? It's, there is no better experience than experience. So that's that's my 
uh, my tip there, if you if you want to do that, just just get in front of customers. Hundred percent agree. And my last question, which is a, a personal or professional answer for you, if you could go back in time to your twenty year old self, based on what you know now that you didn't know then, what would you tell younger James? Buy Bitcoin. <laughs> I bet a lot of people are saying that. I can give you a better answer if you want. <laughs> it, that's a good one. But yes, one, one okay. more. So two things. One thing, buy Bitcoin. The other one, just be yourself. Personally, I spent so much of my career trying not to be myself, desperately trying not to be myself. And like 95% of my energy on any given day was desperately trying to be someone else. The moment I gave that up and decided to just embrace being me, everything started going right for me. So that's that's my real advice. I'd go back to 20-year-old me and I'd say, just just be yourself. That is wonderful advice. And I'm going to continue sharing that with others. Where can people find you if they want to connect with you and learn more? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. Just type in James Dodkins. You'll find me. I'm like, there's only like three of us in the world. I'm, I'm the best one. Sorry, other Jameses. Uh, if you're on Instagram, <laughs> at the CX Rockstar. If you're on Twitter, at Jay Dodkins. Um, you can drop me an email at jd at pega.com or check out my website, jamesdodkins.com. And I will include those in the show notes so anyone listening doesn't have to worry about replaying it and write it down. It'll be there for you. So Thank you, James, for the gift of you. I love talking to you and I appreciate it again. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining today. I hope you will apply the lesson shared and also requesting if you would leave a review on Apple it would mean a lot. Head over to doingcxright.com to learn more ways to connect with me and improve your CX. Until next time, I'm Stacey Sherman, Doing CX Right.